0: In Revelation chapter 2, as we prepare to go through uh, these next verses, this really this last half of the chapter, I suppose we're probably halfway through chapter 2 if you look at the amount of verses that are there, but this last half of the chapter, it um, contains the third and fourth letters that are written to the seven churches in Asia Minor. It's really what chapters 2 and chapters 3 of the book of Revelation are all about. The first letter was written to the church in Ephesus, and if, if, if you remember, even though Jesus praised this church for many things, he had one thing against them, and he declared that they were guilty of leaving their first love. And in light of this, Jesus called them to the place of repentance and to take further action after that, to repent, to return to him, and and also specifically to do the first works, that first work of believing in him, of trusting in him. And as we studied this letter, we were reminded that Jesus knows us and he knows our church, uh, in a very intimate and personal way. And even when things might look good to others on the outside, whether it's in our own lives or in, even in our church, we're reminded that Jesus, who knows us intimately, sees into our hearts. He sees into the thoughts, the Bible says, and the very intent of our heart and the motives for why we do what we do. And, and his desire is that, and I love this, because his desire is that our relationship with him and that our service for him or to him is genuine, meaning that, and it's very simple, we can think that, that when you hear those, those two things, especially when you look at it from the world's point of view, you can start to put together this big old long list of what that might look like in, in regards to genuine and faithful service, in regards to our relationship to him. But he boils it all down and it comes back to this one thing, it's our love for him and, our, and, our, and, and ultimately our love for one another and those around us. And, and he, he challenges the church in Ephesus to return to that first love, but to return to him in this way, uh, in regards to their works, and in regards to their service to him, loving him and loving others. And, and it was an encouragement for us to be grounded in that, to be centered in that. And if there's anything else in the peripheral that's taken that, that primary place of love, then it needs to go away, because then there's a wrong motive behind why we do what we do, in regards to our very relationship with the Lord, but even in the things that he may call us to do. Then, in our studies through verses 8 through 11, which record the second letter from Jesus, we read that, we read what he said, had to say to uh, the church in Smyrna. And, and to these Christians, to these believers in Smyrna, when he greeted them, he said this, he said, he said, I am the first and I am the last, the one who was dead and the one who has come back to life. And after saying that, Jesus took a, a, a little bit of time to praise these believers for their, their steadfast faithfulness to him, even through a great persecution, meaning when it got hard, they just pressed in. They, they, didn't, they didn't forsake or flee. They pressed in to, to, to the one who had saved them. And consequently, Jesus, to this church, he had no words of rebuke to this suffering church. And his letter to them was one of encouragement that was intended to strengthen the Christians in Smyrna who were suffering for his namesake. And we, as we studied a couple of weeks ago, we know that it was even to, the point, even to the point of death. In light of this letter, we're reminded, <clears throat> the, the reminder for us, the encouragement for us, even the admonition for us is that, is that um, no matter what trial we face, no matter what tribulation we're going through in this life, As Jesus spoke to the Christians in Smyrna, he also speaks to us and he says, I know. I know what you're going through. I know what you're facing. I know what's lying ahead. And and in doing so, Jesus reminds us that he's always by our side. As a matter of fact, these these words can be deduced from that study is that he's ever-present. That he's ever-present to provide for us the help and strength that we need. And as a result of this letter... We see that um, contentment, this is a big thing, we see that contentment, not comfort, is, is really the goal for a Christian who seeks to live in a way that brings glory to God. And if we're just about being finding comfort in this life rather than finding contentment, we're going to miss the, that very intimate part of the relationship that God desires to have with us that sometimes can only come through trial and tribulation and as we press into him and and as we we look for contentment and not comfort, living in a way that brings glory to God, looking to eternity, what we remember as we even talked about it in relationship to communion and the Lord's return, we remember that this life is quickly passing away, that it's temporary. So as we continue on now, And going through chapter 2, what we're going to do is we're going to read of this third letter, which is addressed to the church in Pergamos, okay? The church, and I don't think we would want this to be how we are remembered, but it's the church that's been remembered or come to be known as the compromising church. And that's what we're going to be looking at this morning. So let's read, and then we'll pray for our time and also pray for, as I said, Christian family fellowship. But Picking up in verse 12, we're told it says, Jesus speaking to the Apostle John. We know the backdrop here as we study through the first chapter and a half now. It says, To the angel in the church of Pergamos, write, Jesus speaking to John, These things says he who has the sharp two edged sword. I know your works and where you dwell where Satan's throne is, and you'll hold fast to my name, and did not deny my faith, even in the days when Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you, because you have there those who hold to the doctrine of Balaam. You taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit commit sexual immorality. Thus, verse 15, you you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which things I hate. Repent or else I will come to you quickly and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat, and I will give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name written which no one knows except him who receives it. Let's pray. Father, thank you, God, for the words that are written down here, the message that you spoke to the Apostle John, that he was faithful to write and send out to the early churches, God, that really transcends through time into our own lives today. And God, as we look at these things as a as a piece of history, um, Lord, we know they're also prophetic in regards to future things that apply to our lives today, to the church today. And God, we pray you would just meet us right there again, where we're at, speaking to us personally and individually, convicting us, encouraging us, strengthening us. And Lord, my prayer is that the church, our church, would be strengthened. And Lord, for the Christian Family Fellowship, I pray... For that church, for our brothers and sisters there, I pray that there would be a mighty strengthening that takes place through the teaching of Pastor Sean this morning, through the time of worship, Lord. That they that they um, lift Your name high above every other name, Lord. That You would prepare the hearts and minds of those people there in the church for this new pastor to come, and God, that um, mighty things would be done in and through Him and through those those brothers and sisters there in our community, Lord, to change Canyon City and to change Fremont County, Lord, that we together, as we serve you, Lord, would be those like the apostles who turned the whole world upside down. Lord, I still believe and trust that the gospel message is the power, your power, Lord, that leads into salvation. And So the good news message of your son Jesus dying on the cross, Lord, I pray that that would come through in the study today. And if anybody here, Lord, has not yet given their life to you, anybody here, Lord, who finds themselves in the place of compromise, Lord, that they, that we all together would be convicted and repent, and Lord, that we would um, rest assured in your provision and in the work that you've done for us, that you've laid up for us. Father, we love you, and we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> all right, so... So first, a little backdrop on the city. I like to do a little bit about the, the city and the people in these places, not not just the church, uh, before we go into it, because I think it kind of gives us a, a contextual understanding for maybe even what was written in the letter by Jesus. And Pergamos was a very significant city, and historically, when we look back on it, we see that it was remembered as the greatest city in, in Asia Minor. And and we've looked at Smyrna, and we've looked at Ephesus, and we saw that these places were also major cities, but, but Pergamus was different considering that it was the political capital of the Roman Empire in Asia Minor. As a matter of fact, it was the political capital uh, of the Roman Empire in, in Asia Minor and all these Greek um, areas for more than 300 years, Rome ruled and reigned from there over all of Asia Minor. Uh, Pergamus was located um, 60 miles north of Smyrna and 30 miles inland from the Aegean Sea, on the uh, banks of the Caicus River. And um, unlike the other cities that we've looked like, unlike uh, or looked at, unlike uh, Ephesus and Smyrna, whose port cities on the Aegean Sea is what made them famous for trade and for commerce, Pergamus was best known for its religious and its educational systems. And in the writings of the ancient Greek historian uh, uh, Poltarch, we are told that Pergamos had the second largest library in the world. Second to, does anybody know the first one? Huh? Alexandria. Yeah, the the, uh, libraries of Alexandria. And uh, this library contained, now think about this, we can go to our library, and, and today we have uh, you know, unfettered access to every book that we could ever imagine, just through your tablet or, or, or uh, the Internet. But when you think that these things were handwritten and stored and preserved, um, it's amazing when you think about the number that was collected there, had been stored there, because it contained more than 200,000 books. And, and that tells you a little bit about what that city thought was important. In fact, Pergamos was a thriving center um, of what was known to be um, uh, what we know as a parchment. It, 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 it was the greatest producer of parchment at the time, which is a material that is made from animal skin that was commonly used for paper as, as for writing on and it was a much better product than what had previously been used before, because it was made from animal skin. It could it could withstand a little bit of weathering, a little bit of time better. And what we know is, is that before parchment became paper or popular, paper was made from um, papyrus. And in fact, um, <clears throat> parchment evolved from the name of this ancient city, Pergamus. And so it dominated the production and the trade of this parchment. And a legend arose that um, the parchment had been inverted or invented in Pergamos to replace the use of papyrus for the, solely for the, the whole reason of kind of one-upping Alexandria, because Alexandria and their books and their manuscripts were all papyrus-based. And I don't know if that's true. It's just an interesting fact that I came across. But the city of, of Pergamos... Uh, or the citizens of Pergamus, they were Greeks, okay? Just like most of the people in that area were. There was trade and commerce and people moving and settling, and so there was some other people groups there. But this was a Greek city. This was a, a Greek nation. And even though they were not Roman, I point that out, because even though they were not Ro- Roman, the citizens of Pergamos were completely devoted to the Roman Empire. They, did not, they were not seen as enemies or adversaries, but they welcomed the Romans. and this was due to the fact that the last king of Pergamus, King Altus II, he had no male heirs, and so upon his death, he willed his entire kingdom to the Roman Caesar, Augustus. In fact, the citizens of Pergamus were the first to construct and dedicate a temple of worship to Caesar and there was also, in addition to that, a temple dedicated to the Greek Roman god Ascapulus, uh, who was the god of healing, whose insignia, you've probably still seen it today, was is the, intwi- the, the, the intertwined snakes on on a staff, which is still the symbol of, of most medical things today. But those who worshipped Ascapulus just to give you an idea of what was going on there, those who worshipped Escapulis and had called upon his name for healing it was such a basically if you were healed after calling upon the name of Escapulus, what you would do more, more times than not what people would do is they would offer up one of their own limbs be it an arm as a, or a leg as a sacrifice of thanks for the healing that they believed that he had given to them. That's pretty hardcore. But even though the people of Pergamus could boast and having this temple dedicated to Caesar and this temple dedicated to Scapulus, The greatest temple that Pergamus boasted in was a large covered altar dedicated to the pagan god Zeus, right? And um, this, this uh, altar, it measured 110 feet wide. It was 120 feet long and over 30 feet tall. And at the base of its many pillars are, were beautiful carvings that depicts, depicted a celestial battle between the gods and the goddesses of Mount Olympus and the Titans. And, and I give you that detail because the cool thing about it is this altar of Zeus is just not a remembered thing of history, um, a, a, a remembered thing of written history, as it was rediscovered and excavated by a German archaeologist named Karl Humann in 1878. In fact, the, the, the German government um, had gone to, they went to great lengths to um, move it, this entire altar, they moved it piece by piece to Germany and, and had it reconstructed in Berlin where it now stands uh, uh, in the Pergamon Museum. You can go and look that up and, and see it for yourself. And it's cool because it connects to what we're reading here, to the times that we're reading here. And, and the fact that Jesus says, listen, I, I know where you guys live. It's, it's where Satan's throne is. And we get a little idea of maybe why why Jesus <clears throat> mentioned that and or Satan's throne. In verse 13, Jesus stated that Pergamos was Satan's throne and in light of all of these pagan places of worship and the notoriety that it gave to this city, we see why Jesus may have said these things. But in spite of... In spite of all the pagan worship that abounded in and throughout the city that people would travel from afar off to come and participate in, we see that there was a group of Christians there, a group of Christians who worshiped the true and living God. And man, I don't know about you, but sometimes I feel like that living in Colorado. This is now Satan's throne, and um, uh, we're living here in the midst of it. (laughs) Sometimes it feels like that. But but that's, that's the, the climate. That's how it was for them. And we see in light of this, of this letter that um, this church who lived in this place, that they began to compromise. They began to compromise and we're, and were not living wholeheartedly for the Lord Jesus Christ as they once had been. And in verse 12, we see that Jesus describes Himself to them, to these Christians in Pergamos, as, quote-unquote, verse 12, the one who has the sharp two-edged sword. And this, this, of course, is a symbolic attribute of Jesus, and this symbolic ap- attribute of Jesus that he describes himself with, just like all the other attributes that Jesus reveals himself in, in written form to each one of these churches, this description reveals this church's single greatest need in light of their compromise, in light of the place where they were living and who they were among, and to the place where they were and what they had gone to. And when the Apostle John, back in chapter 1, if you remember, when he describes to us seeing the resurrected Jesus in all of his glory for the very first time, he said back in verse 6 of chapter 1 that out of his mouth came this sharp two-edged sword. And this is significant but this, because this sword that is being referenced here and in, in, in also in other places in Scripture is, is very often a picture of God's Word, specifically in, in the context of God's Word of truth, that God's Word is truth. It's a picture of God's Word of truth as well, as you guys know, and the first thing that probably conjure up in your mind when you hear of the sword is this judgment it's a picture of God's word of truth coming forth from the Savior's mouth, but also a picture of, 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 of God's judgment. And in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, it says this, that the word of God is living, it's powerful, and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow, and it is a discerner of the thoughts of And the intents of the heart. Now, with that description backing up this symbolic representation that Jesus speaks about himself, we can get some context for what's going on. And in light of this, I think we see the church, we see Jesus calling this church in Pergamos, which was in the midst of compromise, he was calling them to, to heed, to submit to his words of truth before the judgment came. And so when Jesus describes himself in verse 12 as the one who has the sharp two-edged sword, I think it should have grabbed their attention. And, and I think it needs to grab our attention as we look perhaps this morning and should this morning to see where we may have also compromised or allowed for compromise to enter into our own lives in regards to our relationship with the Lord and the things that he's called us to. Now because Pergamus was the capital city of the Roman Empire here in Asia Minor as these churches were all located there, we know that it was also the home for the Roman governor. And, and not just like um, Pontius Pilate who was the governor over the, the, the area of Judea there in Israel. He was like the governor of the governors. This was the head guy, the head seat here. And, and this governor resided as the judge as they often did, but he resided in, as the judge over the highest court in the land, over all of Asia Minor. And he had the authority to sentence people to death. And he resided here in Pergamos. This guy was nothing to be messed with. Yet when Jesus described himself to the church as the one who has this sharp two-edged sword, a sword of truth, and also a sword of judgment, I think Jesus was also pointing out that in spite of this the seat of power, the seat of secular power that was in the place where they lived, he was reminding them of the fact that he ultimately had all power and all authority to rightly judge. It didn't end with this Roman governor, in other words. Consequently, there was no reason, as a result of this, as a result of this understanding, as a result of this reminder, there was no reason really for the Christians in Pergamus to have any fear of this earthly ruler who was, it was an ungodly man. He was a pagan and, 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 and an adversary of the church at the time. They had no reason to fear him even at this time. Think about it. Jesus is saying, you have no reason to fear even at this time when people who they loved, people who they knew, and many of them were being arrested and persecuted and put to death by the Roman government simply for their faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus said, you have no reason to fear. And, 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 and remember, Jesus had said to his disciples when he was on the earth back in Matthew chapter 10, verse 28, he says this, and, and hear this reminder for yourself again this morning. He says, do not fear those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul but rather fear Him who is able to destroy both soul and body and hell. And the point is, is the church in Pergamos, when it was all boiled down, when it was all stripped away, when they had their eyes on Christ, just like when we have our eyes on Christ, there's really no reason to fear any man. And this is an important reminder. Why? Because the truth of it, guys, is as many compromises that are in our lives and that we read about even in this church and maybe even in our own church, many compromises can be rooted in the fact that we're fearful of what man might think about us or what man might do to us when we live for God and when we worship him without compromise. And so even though Christians in Pergamos had no real reason to fear man, what Jesus was also pointing them to was that there should be a real reason to fear him. A real reason to fear and obey the one who had the sharp two-edged sword. Likewise, for us, there's no reason to be afraid of any man or what man might do to us, but there are many reasons to fear God and many reasons for us to obey His commands, to live without compromise. Considering that in addition to being the judge of our souls, we know that God is our, the Bible says, He's our loving Heavenly Father. And, And we like that. I, I like that. And I think when I think about that, I think about, you know, hopping up on dad's lap, or if I need something, he's gonna be there to take care of me and provide for me and protect me. And and those things are great thoughts. But when we look at it in this context of him also being our loving heavenly father, we know that a, a loving father is also a father who's faithful to discipline. He's faithful to discipline us when it's needed. And and, and the Bible affirms this, and you know it's true, that, that even though discipline yields what the Bible calls a peaceable fruit of righteousness, discipline is painful. It's painful in the moment. Furthermore, the Bible teaches us that the fear of God, I love this. Think about this. Don't forget this. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, The fear of God is the beginning wisdom. And if we desire to be wise, and we should, especially in this world where we live in where there's such lack of wisdom, such great foolishness, if we desire to, 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 to um, be wise and not live like fools, then we'll heed the word of God, the word of truth, and do whatever God says. Two things. We'll heed Listen and will do. Now, the thing about the Word of God, when you look at this analogy, so this two-edged sword thing, that was standard issue to a Roman soldier. A Roman soldier had a short dagger-like sword. It wasn't super long. It wasn't like the Vikings or the, you know, it wasn't even like the, 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 um, the uh, Arabs at the time who had, you know, Damascus steel and a long curved sword. The, the Romans had a shorter sword that was used for hand-to-hand combat in very fighting, in very personal, close, up-front instances. But their swords were two-edged, right? That was what was unique about uh, the Roman sword. It was a very familiar um, uh, thing to whom this letter was being written to, sharp on, on each side. And the thing about the Word of God being like this Sharp two edged sword is, is, is that first of all, it cuts in two ways. You could cut front way and back way, it slices in every direction that, 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 that you go as it, as it cuts. It cuts in two ways. And, the, and as we look at this as a spiritual representation into our own life and Christ possessing this two edged sword, being the word of God and, and, and God's judgment, we know that it has certain abilities. This sharp two edged sword that's being spoken of, it has. First of all, the ability to expose our sin. The word of God being like a sharp two-edged sword, as it cuts, it has the ability to expose our sin. In the at the same time, because it cuts both directions, it provides the way for the sin to be removed from our lives. I love that. It's one thing to have your sin exposed, but to be able to have it removed as well is a blessing. In other words, as we read God's Word, as we study God's Word, as in as we look into God's Word, like it tells us in the book of James, as it being like a mirror, right? As we look at God's mirror like a mirror, then it can and it will cup, cut, cut into us as deep as it needs to in order to reveal what's in our heart, but then it cuts again like a scalpel, like a precision instrument, and it will able to in order to remove the things in our hearts and in our minds and, more, and, and ultimately in our lives that are making us spiritually weak and spiritually sick. But we have to submit to that. We have to recognize that. We have to go, okay, God's the one I reverence. God's the one I respect. Not man in any way, but God who has the ability to do these things in my life. And so in verse 13, going on with that, if you look, Jesus giving this this description of who he is, he goes on in verse 13 and he says, I know your works and I know where you dwell, where Satan, Satan's throne is. And you hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith even in the days in which Antip, Antipas was my faithful martyr who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. So after greeting the church in Pergamus, we see here in verse 13 that like Jesus had done, first with the church in Ephesus, he continued on then by commending them, encouraging them, praising them for what they were doing right, saying this, that he knew of their works. He knew of their faithfulness to him in spite of being persecuted, in spite of dwelling in this unholy place. And the Bible makes it clear, if you remember, as Jesus speaks about knowing their works, Jesus makes it clear, or the Bible makes it clear in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, then it teaches us that, guys, listen, we're saved by grace through faith in Jesus and not by our works. Bible makes it very clear. But in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, which follows that, that statement of truth, it goes on to teach us that we, now think about this, that we've been created, it tells us, created in Christ Jesus, literally saved by God and born again for good works. Good works that God has prepared for us so that we should walk in them. And it's interesting to note that in every one of these letters to the churches, you can go and look on your own time. I went ahead and looked on mine. But in every one of those letters to the churches, the very first thing that Jesus makes mention of is knowing of the works of those in the church. That's significant. I think it's important then. And even though most of these churches had some serious problems, the fact of the matter is, is that they were putting their faith into practice, and that's what works is. It's, it's our faith put into practice, and the point is, is their faith in Jesus was evident by what they did and not just by what they said. And Jesus wanted them to know, I notice. He notices us as well. He looks into our lives and he looks into our church and he notices. And the fact of the matter is, guys, if we say we're followers of Jesus and that we put our faith in him to save us and to forgive us, then the way we live our lives and the works that we do should and will, if this is true, reflect the fact that we've been changed. That we've been born again as a new creation in Jesus Christ. This is what James was talking about when he wrote and said, James chapter 2, verse 18, he says, there will be some who will say to you, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works. And James says, I will show you my faith by my works. And I think a very simple way of putting this, in light of this, I want to point out that I think has rightly been said this, that we're not saved by our works, but we're saved for good works. We're not saved by our works, but we've been saved works. For good works. So not only did Jesus say that he noticed the Christians in Pergamos were willing to do good works, saying, I know them. He also pointed out and praised them for remaining faithful. Faithful to him. Literally holding fast to his name and not denying the faith, even in the midst of this hostile environment. I don't know any other figurative description of a more hostile place. And, and I think we should take it seriously when Jesus says, this is where Satan's throne is at. And I don't know if there's some kind of literal meaning to that but at least in the figurative sense we get a very um, graphic picture of what's, what it must have been like and yet they did not deny the faith in the midst of this hostile environment remember Jesus had said he said I know where you dwell and it's right in the midst of Satan's throne and, and I, I listen to that and I hear that and I go how about that for a hostile environment and since Satan is actively you know, he's actively opposed to God and opposed to those who follow him it's reasonable to assume it's reasonable to assume that pergamus was not an easy place to be a devout on fire follower of Jesus nevertheless they had held fast to the name of Jesus both in their deeds and in their words and they had denied him even when Jesus says here even when a fellow believer of theirs named antipas was put to death it's so a little little information about Antipas. Antipas, whose name means this, I love this, against all. Antipas, it means against all. He was the pastor of the church in Pergamos, history teaches us, during the reign of Emperor Domitian in 83 AD. Church history tells us that, that the, the citizens of Pergamos at this time, the citizens of Pergamos as a whole, people who lived here, that they were openly worshipping demons who had appeared to them. And these demons had told them that, they had come to them and said, we're going to have to leave, we can no longer live here in Pergamos or accept the sacrifices. And, and, And they gave Antipas the cred for that. They said, because Antipas had driven them out. And as a result, Antipas was arrested. And he was delivered over to the Roman governor, this, this head guy that we've been talking about. And the governor gave Antipas the opportunity to denounce his faith in Christ and to declare, declare Caesar to be Lord. And in doing so, what you would do at the time is you would take a pinch of, of incense and you would toss it into a, a red-hot copper altar of Caesar. And it was shaped like a, a, a steer. It was a full-size steer with an open belly. And there would be a fire burning in this belly. And you would throw the, the incense in there and declare Caesar to be Lord. And, and, um, but we know that Antipas refused. He refused to do this. And as a result, church history tells us that he himself was thrown into the belly of this altar, of this, this, this bronze steer, and literally burned to death. But when you read about him in, in these books of martyrs that are out there, we're told that even when he was inside the belly of this copper steer... Being cooked to death, Antipas could be heard praying to God and glorifying his great power, giving thanks to God, saying that he was uh, uh, giving thanks to God for being worthy to suffer for his love. This guy was against all, he was for Jesus and he was against all. And there's no doubt that Antipas was not ashamed to be called a Christian. And neither were the rest of the believers in Pergamos, even though they were surrounded by unbelievers who hated them. Think about that. In light of this, guys, I wonder if the same thing could be said of us. Are we willing to claim the name of Jesus even when we're surrounded by a group of people who hate Christians? You're going to get more and more opportunity to do this, to test this out as the end draws near, let me tell you. Are we willing to claim the name of Jesus even when we're surrounded by a, people, a group of people hate Christians? Or do we care so much about what people think of us or say of us that we keep the fact that we're Christian a secret? As you think about that, I want to remind you of the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 10, verses 32 and 33. He says this. This is something we need to take seriously, especially because of these words that Jesus says here. He says, "Therefore." Whoever confesses me before men, and that's just not in the church setting where we go, oh yeah, I'm a believer in Jesus. I follow him. It's in the world that we live in, even in the midst of those who hate our Savior and hate us for doing so. Jesus said, therefore, whoever confesses me before men, him I will also confess before my Father who is in heaven. But... He said, whoever denies me before men, him I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. Now the truth is, when it comes to these kinds of questions that I just previously asked, I think we'd like to all say that we're willing to suffer persecution and even willing to die for Jesus. Amen? However, if we say we're willing to die for Jesus, then we should be even more willing to live for him right now by wholeheartedly doing His will and not our own. Now even though the Christians in Pergamos were bold followers of Jesus, right? There's some good things here mentioned of them. We see that they had compromised in many ways. And so in verse 14, it begins with this ever so familiar word, but. But I have a few things against you. Because you have there those who dwell to the doctrine of, Now, as he says this, he's not speaking to them in the place that they live, right? In the city, there's those who are adhering to this doctrine. He's saying to them, among you, in you, with you, a part of you, you have this going on. You have those who hold to the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things, sacrifice to idols and to commit sexual immorality. Thus you also have those, again, thus you also have those who hold to the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. And Jesus said this previously, and he says it again, which things I hate in regards to the Nicolaitans. So even though these Christians had works and had not denied the name of the Lord, even in the face of persecution, there were these things that Jesus did. Had against them, mainly they had begun to follow the doctrine of Balaam and the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. That's that's how this is contextually being delivered to us. Doctrine simply means teaching. That's what it means. And apparently, some bad teaching had come into the church, and certain people who 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 um, gave their way to this bad teaching. Um, in the church started to compromise what they knew to be true and followed after these things that were not of God. That's what was going on. And in order to understand this teaching, we need to know, first of all, a little bit more about Balaam. And Balaam was an Old Testament prophet. Again, I told you over and over again as we go through this this book, this bush that, book that tells about futuristic events, right, that, that it's a Jewish book and there's all kinds of of Old Testament references. Well, this is another one. Balaam was a guy from the Old Testament, a prophet of God who had been hired by a Moabite king in an attempt to destroy God's people. And this account is found and in, in recorded for us in Numbers chapters uh, 22 through 25. You can go and read that on your own. It's a really fascinating story. And in these chapters, we're told that Balaam went against God, this prophet of God, he went against God and, and, and made this alliance with this Moabite king, to come against God's people because he was consumed by his greed, is what we're told. And in doing so, we're, 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 we're told that, that, first of all, in this account, that, that, that Balaam was limited to what he could do. He was a prophet, but he could not speak any prophecy or curse against the children of Israel. Yet, because Balaam lusted for, for money, he, he took this upon himself to advise the Moabite king in a plan to defeat the children of Israel, he, 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 he advised the Moabite king to get the children of Israel to compromise. That was the key. To compromise a relationship with God by sending Moabite women to have sex with the children of Israel while they worshiped the pagan god Baal. And this is exactly what the Moabite king did. And as a result, you can read in that account, as a result, God's people compromised. They, in doing so, they committed what the Bible refers to what God calls spiritual adultery, as they entered into the sins of idolatry and immorality. Consequently, God dealt with them, because God is a God, a loving Heavenly Father that disciplines. And this discipline was painful, and this discipline was a plague. It was a, a plague that killed 24,000 Israelites at that time. And apparently sometime after Antipas was martyred, some people in the church also began to compromise and were joined in some way to these pagan people of Pergamos. That's what we're being told. And if if the church in Pergamos had those who did hold to the doctrine of Balaam, like it says here, what it means is it means that there were some among them who were entering into these sins of idolatry and sexual immorality through the worship of, of, of these other pagan gods that, that the, 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 the people of Pergamos were doing. And they were among them. And exactly how this all took place is not told or known to us, but the thing to take note of is that they, okay, they at this point for the sake of 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 getting along with unbelievers in Pergamos began to compromise what they knew to be true. They wanted to not be like Antipas against all they wanted to be, just get along with all. And the best way to get along with someone is to be like them, right? Find common ground. But in doing so, guys, they wrongly thought that they could do the things of God and speak of the things of God while doing and saying what the unbelievers in Pergamos were doing and saying. Think about that in relationship to the world that we live in and the compromises in our own lives and the compromises in our church. Have we allowed for certain things to subtly slip in because we just want to get along? And we let a little bit in, a little bit of leaven, a little bit of sin, a little bit of compromise, a little bit of being like the world. And perhaps... For these guys, it was fear. Perhaps it was fear that motivated them to compromise and try to blend in, right? Thinking that if they were not such radicals for Jesus and tried to blend in with unbelievers, then with them or with unbelievers around them, then it would be it would be okay. It would be better if we were just weren't radicals or on fire. Just bring it down a little bit, right? That kind of thinking. But it was it was not okay, since all of God's people, guys. There's there's no place ever allowed or ever were we're called to compromise. As a matter of fact, it's the opposite. We're called over and over and over again to be separate from the world, to not be joined to the world, and to never compromise the truths that are found in God's Word, not even for the sake of getting along. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 14-17, through 17, we're reminded of this when it says, don't be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. Why? For what righteousness does wicked... For what does righteousness and wickedness have in common? There's no common ground there to be found. Or what fellowship can light have with darkness and what harmony is there between Christ and worthlessness? The word there is Belial. What does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? What common ground is there? We have all things in common here because of Jesus Christ. That's what unifies us. He goes on and says, what agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will live with them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. Therefore, he says this, go and compromise with them. No, never. He says this, therefore, come out from them and be separate, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing, and I will receive you. See, the bottom line is anytime the church as a whole or we as individual Christians are willing to compromise with the world, this is what the Bible says we're doing. We're committing spiritual adultery. And we're being unfaithful to Jesus. And the fact of the matter is this is something that God takes seriously considered we're called to be holy. We're called to be a pure bride for Christ who gave his life for us. A pure bride for Christ, someone who wholeheartedly keeps themselves for him alone. Now in addition to these spiritual compromises, the church in Pergamus we told, had also adopted the teachings of the, the Nicolaitans. This word Nicolaitan, you heard me say it earlier when we were studying through some of the other letters, it, it literally means the overcoming or the conquering of the people. And it's a direct reference to this hierarchy of, of priests who began to rule over people the people in the church, and, and we know that this is still present in many churches today, there's this doctrine out there, it's, it's really weird stuff, and, and even though there were many heretical teachings that were birthed from this religious sect, these, these Nicolaitans, that had infiltrated the early church, we see that the church in Pergamos, unlike the church in Ephesus, who Jesus says they hated the deeds of Nicolaitans, which he also hated, that, that in a in, 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 in that Pergamus was different than Ephesus here in that they, according to verse 14, they had those who held, not hated, those who held to the doctrine of Nicolaitans. And they were with them, and Jesus rebuked them for it. In light of this, we see another compromise as they were, here's this word that's so popular in our society today and is even becoming popular within the church, right? It's this word tolerant, Let me tell you, God's a gracious God, but He's intolerant. He's intolerant of evil. He's intolerant of sin. He's intolerant of wickedness. But He's gracious, and we're called to be the same. But these Christians in Pergamos, they were tolerant of the Nicolaitans and the accepting of their false doctrines. And I think it's important to point out that what Satan could not accomplish by Persecution, as many in per- Pergamus were told, held fast like Antipas, even in the face of suffering, in the face of persecution. What Satan was unable to accomplish through persecution, Satan was able to accomplish by using deception. Guys, and in doing so, the believers in this church made these unholy alliances. And once again, in the message from Jesus to them in verse 16, The message was simply this. Repent. Repent. Turn away from these things and turn back to Him. Justin, if you want to come up, we're going to end with this. And in verse 17, listen, he says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat. They're like, well, i don 't know for sure what that is, but I want some of that right, and I will give him a white stone, and maybe you 're even going well i don't i don't know what that is either but i 'm going to have a new name, a hidden name written on it. I want one of those, and if you don't think that, you should think that because let me tell you this is good stuff and what we're what we're what's what's being spoken of here. He says a stone, a hidden stone, which no one knows except him who has received it and in verse seventeen, Jesus promises okay there's this promise he promises to the one who hears this message of repentance of this message of repentance by un, by forsaking unholy alliances and 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 by forsaking compromises he says to him this guy this one us this morning if we're willing to repent if we're willing to to forsake unholy alliances, if we're willing to forsake the compromises that we've made, he says to us, the overcomer, he'll give us this hidden manna to eat and a white stone with a new name on it. And guys, this, this hidden manna, and you can go back to the Old Testament and see it's this, it's this provision of God's, it's this promise, excuse me, of God's perfect provision. And it's this idea, this, this picture of being hidden because in the midst of adversity, People come at us and try to harm us by taking away our provision. What, what, you know, they, can, they should try to rob from you, steal from you, either in physical or emotional or spiritual ways. And God goes, don't worry. i got hidden stuff that they don't even know about. And it's a perfect provision for you. Isn't that awesome? It's perfect provision. That's simply what it is. And this white stone... Guys, is a promise of perfect, it's a promise of assurance, is what it is. The assurance of God's blessing. And, and we know that that's manifold, God's blessing is manifold, but when we look at it in relationship to this, this connection to this white stone, when you look back through history at this time, the white stone that is being referenced here in ancient times, and, and the people at this time knew of it, were removed from it, so we don't know it, but a white stone was given, it could be used as a ticket to a banquet. The Bible talks about when the Lord returns that there's a heavenly banquet that we're going to be invited to. The marriage feast of the Lamb. It was also used as a sign of friendship. This white stone. It was given as a sign of friendship. It was also an evidence of being counted, like in a census. And God says, God says, I've got you numbered. It's a promise of blessing. It's a promise of blessing, of assurance in regards to you've been invited to a banquet. He is your friend. He's got you counted. But even more so, the white stone was often given to a person who was acquitted in the court of law. And that's us. Found to be without guilt. To the overcomer, to the one that goes, I'm not going to compromise this white stone is given to us. And the fact of the matter is, is is, we are given all of these things in Jesus Christ through Him. Let's pray. Father, thank You, God, that these truths are, 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 are proclaimed to us this morning for us to take hold of and to accept these promises that, that you've, you've spoken to us, Lord, and by faith to live without compromise, by faith to live holy as You are holy, um, by faith to forsake any unholiness that we have allowed into our lives or to allowed into our church and Lord to live boldly, zealously without compromise for you. Lord, I pray that we would be intolerant but we would be gracious like you are to those around us, Lord. Fill us with grace. Lord, I'm so grateful that you're ever merciful towards us and I pray, God, that we would receive that mercy mercy and grace fresh anew this morning.